We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. In God's speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Okay, my feet are out. Okay, I'm out. How did it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 88 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Jiminy 12, with Jim Lovell and Edwin Buzz Aldrin, Part 3. We left off last week after Buzz Aldrin's third and final EVA. The hard work for the Jiminy 12 mission was now complete. Even with the problems with the radar, the Agena main engines, and the fuel cells, Gemini 12 as a whole had gone very well. Most of the mission objectives were accomplished and some data was obtained from 12 of the 15 experiments assigned to the flight. At times, considerable ingenuity had been required to get around the hardware difficulties. But before we celebrate a successful mission, we need to return Gemini 12 to the ground. During the 59th revolution, Gemini 12 began its controlled automatic re-entry. Here's the clip. And we are one minute from retrofire. Mark. All aircraft are on station as of 1849 Zulu. Network SRO. Go SRO. I have an IP for you from our computer. Okay. Every 24 degrees, 44 minutes north. Reentry went well until the spacecraft reached its peak G loads. At that point, a pouch containing books, filters, and small pieces of equipment broke free from the Velcro on the sidewall of the cabin and landed on Lovell's lap. At this point in the flight, the pilots had already unstowed the D-rings that activated the ejection seats. Per procedure, they were holding the D-rings down between their legs. Lovell had to resist the impulse to catch the pouch for fear that he might accidentally pull the D-ring, which would activate his ejection seats. If he had activated the seat, both he and Buzz would have exploded into the atmosphere, riding the ejection seat during the high temperature time of re-entry. So Jim thought fast and instead squeezed his knees together and hoped that the pouch would not go any further. And it did not. Now here's a recorded clip from re-entry. our data shows you're right in the money. And just a few minutes later, the main parachute was sighted. Starboard. They see a yellow-orange chute. 
Estimating altitude uh, 2,000 feet. The rest of the re-entry was smooth until the moment of landing when the spacecraft plopped down hard on the ocean. It landed only 4.8 kilometers from the point at which it had aimed and only 5.5 kilometers from the carrier USS Wasp. A helicopter deposited the triumphant astronauts on the deck of the prime recovery vessel 28 minutes after touchdown. There, on November 15, 1966, at 2.21 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the curtain closed on the Gemini manned space flight program. Compared to other flights, Gemini 12's accomplishments tended to obscure its hardware problems, of which this final mission had more than its fair share. Some troubles that forced slight changes in the flight plan actually turned into successes. The failure of the radar during the terminal phase of rendezvous, for example, had underscored the fact that backup techniques using onboard charts and computations really did work. In fact, the radar malfunction barely caused a ripple in the routine. Other troubles nagged and frustrated the crew, and some had adverse effects on operations. But, here again, they were not able to mar the impression of success. What was remembered, more than anything else, was Buzz Aldrin's flawless performance during the well-planned EVAs. Now let's consider a few other of Gemini 12's accomplishments that have not been mentioned. First, Gemini 12 added 5 hours and 28 minutes to the Gemini program's total EVA time. Jim Lovell set the record for time spent in space, which was 18 days, he spent 14 days on Gemini 7 and 4 days on Gemini 12. Buzz set a new record on EVA umbilical time of 2 hours and 9 minutes. NASA gained more experience at tethered docking. And finally, there were 14 successful experiments performed. Yes, Gemini 12 was a very successful flight. Now I will attempt to sum up the Gemini program and also speak a little about its interaction with Apollo. With Gemini 12 now complete, the Gemini flag and Gemini pennant that had flown over the manned spacecraft center during each of the missions beginning with Gemini 4 was lowered for the last time. The manned flights had started in 1965. Gemini had succeeded in putting manned spaceflight on something like a routine basis, as envisioned in the Project Development Plan of 1961. This accomplishment did not go unnoticed. President Lyndon Johnson said, quote, Ten times in this program of the last 20 months, we have placed two men in orbit about the Earth in the world's most advanced spacecraft. Ten times we have brought them home. Today's flight was the culmination of a great team effort stretching back to 1961 and directly involving more than 25,000 people in the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, the Department of Defense, 
and other government agencies, in the universities and other research centers, and in American industry. Early in 1962, John Glenn made his historic orbital flight, and America was in space. Now, nearly five years later, we have completed Gemini, and we know that America is in space to stay. End quote. Being in space to stay rested in part on the shoulders of a team that was now experienced in planning, developing, managing, and operating a spaceflight program that had progressed far beyond the shorter flights and simpler missions of Mercury. Gemini was only the second phase of the U.S. manned spaceflight program, but its importance must not be minimized. Gemini had dispelled most doubts about man's ability to withstand weightlessness, to operate in free space outside his spacecraft, and to seek and find other vehicles in orbit. Now Apollo, the third and most ambitious star, waited in the wings, and the complexities of that program dwarfed the scope of Gemini as Gemini had towered over Mercury. Only three years remained in which to accomplish the late President John F. Kennedy's goal before the decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. President Johnson warned the nation that these years might be as exasperating as the early periods of Mercury and Gemini. On November 23rd, he said, quote, The Apollo program, which follows, is much more complicated. It has more elements of yet unproven capability and will use the larger Saturn boosters developed especially for civilian manned flight programs. The months ahead will not be easy as we reach toward the moon. We must broaden and extend our know-how based on the increased power of these mighty new boosters. But, with Gemini as the forerunner, I am confident that we will overcome the difficulties and achieve another success. Apollo will make America truly a space-faring nation. The three-man Apollo is the certain forerunner of the multi-manned spaceships of the not-too-distant future. Ships that will bear the experiments and someday the experimenters of many nations. Ships that will bear the hopes of all men. End quote. The more than 1800 days of Gemini, beginning on December 7, 1961, and lasting until November 15, 1966, spanned a significant phase of human venture into space. Gemini provided techniques, equipment, and experience that helped bridge the difficult translation from experimental Earth-orbiting Mercury to ambitious lunar landing Apollo. Gemini achieved its goals quietly, systematically, and in some degree economically. To a large extent, at least in the general American viewpoint, the regular flying and highly successful Gemini marked America's ascendancy to first place in the space race. 
For some, the developmental phase of Gemini and Apollo proceeded along parallel lines, leading to the belief in some quarters that efforts devoted to Gemini were sapping Apollo's energies. Sporadically throughout the years, a spirit of competition grew within Gemini, a feeling that its spacecraft could do more, its missions could be extended, perhaps even to lunar flight. But within Apollo, doubts were increasing. Gemini had been justified partly on the basis of its contributions to Apollo. In 1965, Howard Tyndall, whose specialty was mission planning, tried to look at the question objectively and concluded that hardware and mission planning were too difficult and too concurrent to try to combine Gemini and Apollo program offices. As for the early days, Tyndall's viewpoint was probably correct. Gemini had too many financial and technical problems of its own to leave much energy to worry about Apollo. Nor was the Apollo office, with its two dissimilar spacecraft, quite as cohesive an organization as it might have thought. Lunar module engineers found it equally difficult to get meaningful assistance from either Apollo Command Module or Gemini spacecraft people, and no doubt, vice versa. No problem that arose on one spacecraft appeared quite like those encountered on the other two, and no one had the time to consider the problems dispassionately and apply them to their counterparts in a particular manner. Once Gemini neared its operational phase, however, things were different. Apollo managers and engineers quickly sought help in various areas. James Church wanted to learn about the Gemini program control experience, especially when the Gemini people succeeded in controlling program cost. Calvin Perrine asked for information on ground test programs as the Gemini development and test experts began meeting delivery schedules more successfully. Rolf Laskron and Joseph Loftus were anxious to learn anything from the Gemini crews that might be applicable to Apollo flight problems. Even North American, the Apollo command module manufacturer, thought some of Gemini's checkout experience might be helpful. Both North American and Grumman, which was the lunar module builder, had already requested manufacturing assistance from the Gemini spacecraft contractor. So, Gemini manufacturing, testing, and review procedures did influence Apollo. By August 1965, many of these methods were being drawn upon to smooth the flow of hardware through the factory and onto the launch site. Of course, Gemini built upon some experience derived from Mercury. The same company manufactured the spacecraft, and the same NASA group managed the project. But modular, accessible, serviceable Gemini was far more suitable for developing a systematic, if not routine, approach to getting it built out of the factory and onto the pad ready for launch. Gemini's vehicles, whose designers had avoided Mercury's interlocking systems, left the contractor plants much as airplanes did, all tested and nearly ready to fly. 
Cape Kennedy became a checkout and launch activity for Gemini instead of the test and modification center it had been during Mercury. In addition to the manufacturing and testing procedures, Gemini worked with several specific systems that were new to spaceflight operations and were common in one form or another to Apollo. Spacecraft thrusters powerful enough to alter the flight path several times and fuel cells to generate electrical energy to run the systems represented particularly impressive advances in aerospace technology. In addition, Gemini spacecrafts were equipped with a computer and a radar to aid in solving the rendezvous problems. All of these systems went through troubled development and qualification periods, and in most cases required extensive redesign. More often than not, these difficulties came to the attention of NASA's top administrators. As a result, problem-solving boards headed by senior officials were appointed and armed with personnel to call upon organizations and facilities in government and industry to bring about solutions. The problems that were hardest to solve were discussed at Gemini and Apollo executive meetings attended by NASA administrators and their staffs and company presidents and their aides, which were the people in charge who could bring pressure and resources to bear to fix thrusters, fuel cells, a genus, and other difficult systems. There were several management bodies created during Gemini that were not constrained to one-shot fix-it functions, but were more formalized and adapted to whatever program followed. One of the more important of these dealt with manned spaceflight experiments. As in other cases, this activity had its origins in Project Mercury, albeit to a very limited degree. Only a few experimental scientists were deeply involved with NASA and industry aerospace technologists, and there had not been much interest on either side in changing that situation. Engineers had concentrated on making Mercury work, and most scientists had preferred to have their experiments ride aboard NASA's unmanned satellites. But in the summer of 1963, science gained a permanent foothold in manned space flight operations. The demise of the Gemini paraglider left some unoccupied space in the Gemini vehicle. A few NASA officials saw a chance to set up an experiments program in orderly fashion. Homer E. Newell, director of NASA's Office of Space Sciences, sent letters to more than 600 scientists describing Gemini and inviting proposals. When the response was good, NASA established a manned spaceflight experiments board in January 1964. By the fourth Gemini flight, which was the second manned flight, experiments and principal investigators had been worked into mission operations with fair success. By the last Gemini flight, Procedures had been sharpened sufficiently for the board to continue in Apollo and later in Skylab. One of the quicker ways Gemini grabbed Apollo's attention, though certainly not planned that way, was its near-catastrophic anomalies. 
Perhaps the most significant example was the explosion of Gemini Agena target vehicle 5002 in October 1965. The solution, which was to inject oxidizer into the firing chamber before the fuel, was applied to the lunar module's ascent engines simultaneously with the modifications to the Agena's primary propulsion system. But there were day-to-day -day Apollo Gemini exchanges that did not relate to specific incidents. For example, people from the flight crew support and crew systems divisions worked on astronaut equipment and spacesuits to achieve a range of capability from extravehicular activity to shirt-sleeve cabin operations. These features were of direct value to Apollo. Perhaps the group that gained the most insight into the routine operations of the two program offices was flight control. Christopher Kraft, who directed this activity, had been largely responsible for planning the old Mercury Control Center. Much improvising had been necessary to complete that project, and the facility was obviously totally inadequate to support Gemini and Apollo. NASA decided to build a control center in Houston, the new home of the Manned Spacecraft Center, and based this decision in part on the reasoning that flight control and spacecraft design would profit from having engineers from these two areas working together. Kraft concentrated first on Gemini requirements, partly because of manpower limitations and time constraints, but mainly because the need for Gemini experience in qualifying men, flight control equipment, and procedures to handle the far more complex missions of Apollo. Long before mission operations commenced, Kraft and his group foresaw that Gemini and Apollo flight control would require large numbers of systems, network, and trajectory specialists. Staff rooms that housed experts in these categories were arranged around the mission operations control room. The new control center was not needed for the first two Gemini manned missions, but Kraft wanted to and did get it set up and operating one flight before any rendezvous maneuvers. Kraft led his flight control team through the first rendezvous mission as he had intended and then withdrew to apply the lessons he had learned to Apollo. A major area on which he focused attention was the computer complex. Although the IBM 7094 model then in use was adequate for Gemini, it was better suited to scientific purposes. What Apollo needed, Kraft said, was a second-generation model capable of supporting real-time space operations. He was proved right when the flight controllers were able to change Apollo 13 in the middle of the mission from a lunar landing to a circumlunar flight and thus prevent a space tragedy. Beginning with Gemini's sixth flight, Apollo personnel watched missions operations more closely, attending panel meetings on spacecraft systems and mission plannings, observing flight controller operations, and participating in mission debriefings and evaluations. When things went wrong, like the Agena explosion, the shutdown of the Gemini Launch Vehicle 6 after ignition, 
and the stuck thruster on Gemini 8, systems engineering experts were assigned to determine how similar incidents might or might not affect Apollo. Now let's consider the progress made between the Mercury program and the Gemini program. The Gemini program maintained its original flight schedule much more closely than Mercury had. Eighteen months was the lag time for the first manned Gemini mission. The final manned Gemini mission occurred nine flights later, and it was still 18 months behind schedule that was approved in January of 1962. In contrast, the first manned orbital Mercury mission came 22 months later than scheduled, and the final mission, which was only three flights later, lagged more than 32 months. Mercury's period of orbital operations covered 451 days, or a flight every 112 days, to accumulate only 55 hours of crew experience. The 10 manned Gemini flights spanned 603 days, or a flight every 60 days, to accumulate 970 mission hours and 1,940 man hours in space. Sixteen different astronauts made Gemini flights and four others trained for them. This experience was passed on to Apollo as 15 of the 20 men subsequently flew in the lunar program. The rapid succession of Gemini missions demonstrated that it was truly a second-generation spacecraft and the length of its missions, 330 hours on Gemini 7, allayed major medical concerns over man's ability to adapt to and function in space. More and more, it became an accepted fact during Gemini that man could, should, and would fly to the moon and back. Projects Mercury and Gemini certainly had one feature in common. Both cost about double the original estimate. The best educated guess that Keith Glennon, the first NASA administrator, could give for Mercury was $200 million, and its price was over $400 million at the end. Gemini started at $531 million to build what was supposed to be an improved Mercury, and Gemini wound up costing $1.147 billion to cover a program that included many new developments. Unlike Mercury, Gemini had its share of financial crises. Congress and the administration, beset with a variety of domestic and international problems, curbed the flow of money to NASA, and Gemini usually had to bear the brunt. At times, the prospects must have seemed pretty bleak, to the engineers who worked on it, but the monetary cuts were never deep enough to preclude the accomplishment of Gemini's primary objectives. By putting manned spaceflight on a more routine basis, as stated in the Gemini Project Development Plan, the rapid and successful progression of Gemini missions had a noticeable effect on American and international opinion. Manned spaceflight became commonplace. During the flight period, there had been a spacecraft circling the Earth 
about 6% of the time, or theoretically an hour and a half for each one of the 603 days the operation covered. Not even the Wright brothers at the dawn of powered flight could have sustained public interest on such a regular basis. Over a thousand reporters came to Houston for Jiminy Four, drawn by the knowledge that the new Mission Control Center would operate for the first time, and by the predictions in some medical circles that the astronauts might die after being weightless in flight so long. No succeeding flight drew nearly as many until Apollo 11. Now I want to finish Jiminy with a personal touch from someone who saw it all. I'm going to close with a passage from the first flight director, Christopher Kraft's book, entitled, My Life in Mission Control. Quote, In that time, we'd flown ten Gemini missions, proven out all the required techniques for rendezvous and docking, flown two spacecrafts and four astronauts in space at a time, set endurance records of eight and fourteen days, done spacewalks badly and then perfectly, and proved that the American space program could handle failures such as rockets blowing up and target vehicles malfunctioning, then come back in a matter of weeks and do it again, right this time. In all that time, the Russians did not fly even a single cosmonaut in space, their mission, a week before Gemini 3, was their last. In early 1966, the mysterious head of the space program, Sergei Korolev, had died during botched surgery. Until that announcement, we hadn't even known his name. Now we heard that the Russian program was in disarray and that competition to secede Korolev was hurting their chance of going to the moon. We also heard that they had abandoned their moon program in favor of developing a space station. But nobody on our side knew whether that was right or wrong. The Russians didn't announce advanced plans or hold press conferences to discuss the future. We only found out what they were doing when they did it. So, we had to assume that this space race we were running still focused on putting men on the moon. Gemini seldom gets proper credit in the eyes of space historians, except for those who were there to see for themselves. We were so focused on the operational effects of flying one mission while getting ready for the next that we only saw the larger context when we had time to look back at what we had done. My view is simple. Gemini bridged the technology gaps that made Apollo possible. Without Gemini, the Kennedy goal of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth by the end of that marvelous decade would not have been accomplished. End quote.
Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.